right, folks, so I am here with two guests on the Religious Studies Project monthly discourse episode, which is our chance to talk about religion and the news and religion in current events. I'm the host of the show for this month, and my name is Candace Mixon. I'm a visiting assistant professor at Occidental College, and I'll soon be joining Reed College in Religious Studies in the fall, and I work in Islamic Studies and Material Culture Studies of Religion. We're also joined here today with Tyler Tully, who is an American PhD candidate of Chickasaw descent with Muskegee Creek Heritage, specializing in the critical study of religion and settler colonialism, and was now the United States of America. Uh, he is the Arthur Peacock Graduate Student Scholar in Theology and Science at Exeter College, Oxford. And we are also joined by Matt Sheedy, who is visiting Assistant Professor of North American Studies at the University of Bonn, Germany, and his research focuses on borders of religion and secularism as they play out in news media, pop culture, and political spheres. His teaching and research engages these questions in relation to Muslim, atheist, Christian, and indigenous communities in North America. And his recent book is Owning the Secular, Religious Symbols, Culture Wars, Western Fragility. And that was out on Rutledge. So thank you both for um, being here. There's always so much happening in religion and the news. Um, so... I wanted to kick us off. Um, there's a current court case uh, up before the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court has certainly been one of the most newsworthy situations in the United States, especially this um, this session. And there's a current case, uh, Groff versus DeJoy, that's related to Title VII of um, the Civil Rights Act. And it's related to protection from workplace discrimination and what's under consideration is related to religious accommodations and thinking about hardship uh, imposed on employers for accommodating workplace discrimination and especially what makes undue hardship for an employer and a previous court case that uh, decided that it was basically a de minimis uh, amount. So any little bit of hardship could be something that could be um, undue hardship for an employer. Um, so I wanted to pass it off to Tyler with any thoughts on this case and then um, thinking about other other things that this might relate to. So Tyler, have at it. Appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to be here and it's wonderful to see some familiar faces for the first time. Um, although that we've been in contact with each other and communicating about religion in the world over. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, this current Supreme Court case is interesting to me for many different reasons. The one that comes to mind uh, the most as you read off sort of the summary there, Candice, is about uh, what constitutes a burden uh, on behalf of the employer. Um, there have, there's been some um, legal argumentation recently uh, made before the Supreme Court about uh, it's about laws requiring um, acknowledgement or even um, business being conducted with homosexuals or with LGBTQ people or with trans people, for example, uh, of, of, of it constituting an undue burden on behalf of the employer of the person who's either denying or accepting to do commerce with those people. And it's a, it's a very, um, taxing and tiresome argument from my perspective for a lot of reasons, but it, it does hinge on this idea of where does the undue burden begin and where does it end uh, for people um, in the United States and, and also uh, 
how that might complicate uh, existing obligations, for example, doctors uh, who often use this sort of rhetoric around the abortion issue in the United States uh, will make a similar argument saying that, uh, you know, if I'm a pro-life doctor giving um, assistance to somebody who may be suffering from a complication due to abortion constitutes an undue burden. But someone could also make the exact same argument for uh, gun violence, for example. I, I could be a doctor that is morally against gun violence. I may be a part of a nonviolent uh, religious uh, tradition, for example. Um, but helping people who have been victimized by gun violence, does that constitute an undue burden? And this is, of course, the arguments that are being made uh, in the case that you're talking about as well. Yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, Matt, I didn't know if you had uh, had a chance to think through any any little bits of this case or just kind of thinking about potential ramifications that something like this could have in, in the public sphere. Yeah, well, first off, uh, you know, thanks for having me on. I uh, uh, jumped into this rather late uh, last night, so I wasn't able to catch myself up uh, too much to speed on this particular issue. But of course, questions of uh, accommodation, uh, and the Supreme Court, whether we're talking about the U.S., Canada, or elsewhere, um, are accelerating uh, uh, at a dizzying pace. It's um, it's both fascinating and at times hard to keep up with. And one thing that strikes me as really fascinating, important, and often left out of these particular discourses are the ways in which powerful interest groups behind the scenes are mobilizing towards uh, particular ends. Um, and so when we're talking about religion, probably the best known case would be Hobby Lobby from uh, back in 2014, or at least best known case in, uh, in recent years. And one thing that strikes me about the Hobby Lobby case is that it's not just a question of um, the owners of Hobby Lobby mobilizing their own particular interpretation uh, of religious morality uh, in relation to providing contraceptive health care for their employees. Uh, it, it also has a lot to do with um, the power that corporations wield, uh, especially following uh, court cases like Citizens United back in 2011, uh, and the ways in which a lot of these um, religiously coded Supreme Court cases are also very much informed by particular sets of corporate interests that pit uh, uh, ownership against workers. And I find that that's something that often gets missed in the broader discourse because the dominant framing is one that really sort of compels us in a culture wars framework without necessarily looking at the legal details uh, or again, the dynamics of power at play. So, I mean, that's one thing that I would, um, I would want to foreground without knowing too much about this particular case yet. Yeah, Tyler, anything to add there or, or sort of balance out there? You know, I mean, Hobby Lobby is uh, literally near and uh, not so dear to my heart uh, here in Oklahoma. But yes, it, I think Hobby Lobby's long reach uh, is, that Matt refers to is is a very interesting case in point about the overlap between special interests and the production of knowledge here in the United States. Hobby Lobby uh, has also been famous in the news um, for um, acquiring, I think would be the, the most um polite way to, to describe their taking of um, religious artifacts and um, other uh, objects uh, of import from uh, uh, Iran and Iraq uh, during the Iraq war um, and their purchasing of um, sometimes faked uh, 
items on the black market as well. Uh, but the veneration that goes with that and the, the, the money and the, um, I think the, the, the reach of power that is behind that interest um, extends far beyond just these particular questions about individuals and, and um, owners of businesses in the Supreme Court. It, it, it cuts to the very core of uh, higher education in the United States, museum, um, objects, uh, and the way that we proliferate um, these ideologies uh, that seem to have found a real uh, nucleus of power in places like Hobby Lobby. Thanks for that. Um, one thing I wanted to think about, and I wondered if you all would have any um, ideas about in terms of this um, current case that's just been heard, I think, on April 18th by the Supreme Court, and now it's kind of under deliberation. But um, in Groff versus DeJoy, one thing I've been thinking about is the way that people define um, religious holidays or things that are important to them, right? So um, it's fairly well known in the American context that many Christians choose to celebrate uh, Sunday as a Sabbath. And one key part of the case um, in Groff versus DeJoy was that um, famously USPS, the Postal Service, did not work on Sundays. They, for a very long time, did not deliver mail on Sundays. And then slowly, Amazon Corporation, as, uh, as Matt Sheedy was talking about, um, started to contract with the USPS who needed money needed to help out. And they started offering Sunday services specifically for Amazon deliveries. And that meant that some workers who perhaps had expected to have Sundays off now were being asked to work on Sundays. So that's part of it. And, and you know, they're deliberating some of the um, changes that happen in the accommodations related to that particular working on Sunday. But what I'm thinking about is in terms of um, you know, changing dates, things like the lunar calendar. We just had Eid al-Fitr uh, for Muslims, and we don't know the date necessarily in advance that that's going to happen. Um, there's other sort of commemorations that might not have a fixed calendar date, a fixed time. And so I wonder how the potential expansion of quote unquote, religious rights for people to find workplace accommodations might be replicated in religious traditions that don't have, you know, a text that's easy to go by or a particular, um, you know, calendar that I can say, this is the exact time I'm going to need off work to commemorate my religious practice. So I don't know if that resonates um, maybe with Tyler or Matt. Definitely. Uh, this concept of, uh, the hegemony of time and of temporal line linearity is such a Western Christian construct. Uh, the um, Standing Rock Sioux scholar and religionist Vine Delore Jr. has an awful lot to say about the Western concept of linear time and, and its hegemonic relationship to other uh, ways of being in the world, like literal ways of being in the world. And this is important because Vine Deloria makes a distinction between what he calls the artificial universe and the real world. Those who are grounded, have grounded normativities, as some indigenous scholars might say, um, versus those that are imposing these um, artifices, right? These these artificial structures. And this, this concept of linear time that is predictable, um, repetitive, uh, and that one is able to plan around is is it fits very well. It dovetails it dovetails very closely with capitalism, right? And and the, our economic ways of um, determining um, what to expect in in the world. And so this goes you know far beyond just the ideas of 
um, how other non-Western traditions or non-Christian traditions, we should say, keep time and celebrate um, different um, holy days or, or festivals, um, for lack of a better term. But um, yeah, this strikes at the very heart, I think, of this of what's really being assumed in this case when we talk about um, what gets to count as time and what gets to ta- count as religion. Because even when we were discussing lunar calendars, which lunar calendar are we talking about? Are we talking about, you know, an, an Asian uh, lunar calendar, a, a Native American uh, lunar calendar? Which one, you know, are, are we going to specify? Um, and I think that that question sort of reveals the um, the hegemony that's at, at the heart of this conversation in the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court has to assume that this is the standard by which everything else will be judged. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, just to add a thought or two to that, um, and taking a very uh, different tact, I think, from, from Tyler, Uh, One thing that strikes me uh, when thinking about the language of accommodations is that the tendency until very recently um, was to frame stories around minority groups that the majority state was accommodating, which of course has uh, a very sort of uh, normative sense of uh, benevolence, of making an exception to the general rule, right? Um, And so utilizing the language of accommodation at the behest of corporations is an interesting rhetorical switch um, because it is sort of positioning um, those who it claims to represent as as being in a minority, right? As being in a certain position of need. Um, And so that's something I want to flag as interesting. I also want to think about what's happening right now in a broader culture wars uh, framework. Uh, I think that's something that has been dramatically heightened in this age of social media over the last 15 years or so. Uh, and I think there's also you know, certain evident structural changes when it comes to public discourse uh, involving a much broader audience than in times past. And so in as much as it may appear counterintuitive or foolish to many people, um, that Christian communities are somehow under attack, given the, the you know still relative power that Christians have institutionally uh, and within the broader culture in, in places like the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere. Um, I think the the perception um, that Christians are losing hold uh, of a certain cultural hegemony uh, is something that. Um, uh, is worth considering in this in this broader context of you know uh, accommodations and, and, and Supreme Court cases involving corporations and of course uh, various groups, be they Christian uh, or non-Christian. Cool. Um, so thanks for that. Uh, so speaking of really powerful Christians, um, Tyler, I know you had uh, wanted to comment a little bit on the Catholic Church's decision to rescind the doctrine of discovery. So I wondered if you could mention a little bit about that of perhaps one of the most powerful Christian groups and, and your thoughts on, um, on religious understanding in that case. Arguably. Um, last week, uh, the Vatican News Network uh, released a press uh, release uh, entitled Church Defends Indigenous Peoples, Doctrine of Discovery Was Never Catholic. 
And the not only the title, but the content of this um, press release is such an interesting case study from the, perspe- the perspective of critical religion. Because on the one hand, it can be seen as an acknowledgement that, uh, of the role played by the Catholic Church in the colonial era and its impact on indigenous peoples today. Um, for instance, the statement recognizes that the church's actions contributed to the expropriation of indigenous lands and the promotion of assimilation policies. Um, and this acknowledgement from the Catholic Church as one of the most powerful Christian institutions in the world is significant because it challenges the dominant narrative of the church as a force for good in the world and as a consistent force for good in the world. Um Also, the statement can be seen as a response to uh, this growing critique of the doctrine of discovery across the world and its legacy. Um, The church uh, press release, however, equivocates on this point and says that the doctrine of discovery was a legal concept used by colonial powers to justify their claims over indigenous land and Uh, that the uh, harm that was done was not done by religion or the church per se, but by political power. So they make this strong distinction between the church as a force or as a a religious and faith-based institution versus the um, colonizing politics of a secular sphere, which they're trying to distance themselves from. And that comes out very strongly in the title as well as in the content. And lastly, I just want to point out that the church's statement can be seen in that sense, is a sort of political intervention in the, in the current debates that I mentioned earlier around indigenous rights and around um, uh, a return to acknowledge uh, colonization and its continued legacies. Um, however, um, while this is significant uh, for the, the reasons that I mentioned earlier, um, it also downplays uh, the intertwined in interconnected role that religion and politics played, especially during the eras of the papal bulls that constitute the doctrines of discovery. It's it's quite an interesting and fast and loose argument to say that uh, the doctrines of discovery were, were merely political instruments or uh, secular tools of indigenous dispossession without also accounting for how religion is an integral part to not only the crafting and dissemination of these uh, papal bulls, but also in their enforcement, right? Because the Catholic Church itself um, benefited materially uh, from the indigenous dispossession that took place uh, because of these papal bulls. So I find that this article is just really fascinating as a case study for um, critical religion, not only for the way that it equivocates the Catholic Church's role uh, in uh, the continued colonization of indigenous lands and assimilation, but also in its way of sort of villainizing colonial actors as non-religious, that these that these uh, colonial actors were political and that 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 sphere is somehow completely separate from uh, the realm of, of religion and faith um, at boarding schools uh, in in slave um, courts and seizures uh, property law etc um, it's just a very fascinating argument that that unfortunately um, goes in sync with a lot of the rhetoric that we see today in religious studies that um, really distances 
uh, the role of the academy or the role of the state in colonizing and, and likes to put those uh, those actions and behaviors on bad actors. Uh, and, and I think that this is uh, something that's worth lifting up, not only for the, the um, universal uh, reach of the Catholic Church, if you will, but also in, in the rhetoric, because you see it not only in the Catholic Church, but you see it everywhere. You see this rhetoric of trying to distinguish um, colonizing behaviors and actions as um, secular or political or non-religious um, or the opposite. They're purely religious and non-political. Um, but I think this is where uh, the study of critical religion can help us step in because it allows us to see the nuance and the interconnection, uh, the intertanglement between or the entanglement between both religion and politics, especially uh, in the colonizing of indigenous peoples. Thank you so much for that summary. It might be something that people aren't as familiar with. Um, so really appreciate that. Um, Matt, I don't know if you have any reflections on that. I know, of course, you've done tons of work on um, thinking through politics and religion and, and, you know, those kind of categories. So I don't know if you have anything there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Lots of thoughts. Um, I mean, one, one question I want to pose to, to Tyler, actually, um, is, you know, whether or not and to what extent, you know, you think this functions, at least from the perspective of the Vatican, um, the Catholic Church hierarchy, as a political rhetorical face-saving move. Um, uh, I mean, just to comment from a critical religion perspective, um, you know, I think scholars of religion are, are, are fairly well aware that the kind of distinctions that we tend to make today between religion and politics and culture and their categories uh, are very much the result of a long process that often gets dated back to the Reformation and that didn't really see strong separations to well into the 20th century. Um, and it's often dated earlier than that, but we can certainly look to uh, at least after the Second World War where these kinds of separations started to take hold. So just you know, to give one example from my uh, home country of Canada, uh, the province of Quebec uh, had their quiet revolution in the early 1960s, right, where the Catholic Church, which had previously taken care of healthcare, education, a variety of other so uh, uh, social services, uh, started to, quote unquote, secularize, right? And so that, that gap of that distinction became a lot clearer, uh, where religious and specifically Catholic organizations had to start uh, lobbying and interacting in different ways. They didn't have that very, very close tie that they previously uh, had had. And so I think from a you know critical historical perspective, it is, of course, absurd uh, to separate these categories as though they are somehow uh, separable in the first place, and not always and already entangled, albeit in different ways, depending on how we're analyzing things uh, uh, structurally. So um, sort of returning to the question I wanted to pose you know, to Tyler, um, you know, one thing that strikes me as interesting about Pope Francis, I mean, he's made some very uh, interesting and often contradictory statements regarding atheists, indigenous peoples. Uh, you know, he, his, his visit to Canada two summers ago uh, certainly was a watershed moment in many respects. Uh, garnering a lot of uh, interesting conversation. Um, but he's also someone who is uh, often criticized by Christians and Catholics themselves, right? And there's that separation or distancing that you you see in those kind of discourses too, uh, where he's seen more as a you know political actor or a usurper or someone outside the boundaries of how people may have formally uh, referred to that office, at least in sort of public conversation. So yeah, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. 
Well, I think from a, a small p political perspective, um, there was a lot of thought that was put into this press release because it comes through uh, two dicasteries uh, in the Vatican um, that are related to um, the Pope's uh, ongoing mission to try to uh, underscore the the inherent dignity of different uh, marginalized people groups uh, in the 21st century. And in that sense, uh, the the political rhetoric that that this uh, press release uh, is ensconced within um, keeps intact the authority of the church um, as a defender of indigenous rights and as a recognizer of indigenous um, humanity, if you will. And, and it, it it likes to highlight the. Um, heroes of the faith who have defended indigenous peoples. Uh, but what you won't find in the article are perspectives from indigenous peoples themselves. And I think that's what the most telling part of this is, is that um, it is, it's fascinating that um, this was written in such a way as to maybe play fast and loose with those divisions that you rightly pointed out have been ongoing and intertwined and braided for, for many, many years. And, uh, it is fascinating to me to see on the one hand that um, there is a, there's a justification for the doctrines of discovery as being uh, purely legal or purely uh, political. Um, and, and that of course is a move to innocence because it's, it's arguing that the church has little to do with that, but from a Protestant in uh, United States American perspective, which just is, it's just a little bit different. Right. And I think that this is important because um when he's talking about indigenous peoples, he's talking about the indigenous peoples of the Americas, right? Like we're, we're speaking about very specific indigenous peoples and not just um, uh, a generalized small eye indigenous peoples all the world over. This is a very specific uh, continent and time frame that we're speaking of. Um, but the doctrines of discovery um, serve as the basis for U.S. land claims. And the Supreme Court in the United States has repeatedly affirmed um, that the doctrine of discovery is a um, is the precedent on which the United States stands, quite literally. Um, Johnson v. McIntosh, of course, which is a famous um, Supreme Court decision involving the Cherokee Nation uh, and the, re- the forced removal of the Cherokees um, off of their, their ancestral homelands to what is now the state of Oklahoma. Um, but also as, as late as 2005, where, um, you know, liberal and progressive Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the, uh, uh, the majority opinion in 2005's Onita versus Cheryl, which again reaffirms that the uh, doctrine of discovery is the legal basis for um, the United States uh, title claim over everything that is uh, now the United States. Um, so by by saying that uh, the doctrines of discovery were purely reli- uh, purely political or legal and not religious, the Catholic Church is doing this very interesting two-step move by um, removing them themselves from these legacies of harm and the the material benefits that they took uh, from the uh, colonizing of the Americas, but also um, they make room for the United States to continue to make this argument from a legal perspective that it has rights over indigenous land because of the doctrines of discovery. So on the one hand, uh, it's it's fascinating uh, from uh, on the surface, it's fascinating to, to lift this up as a moment of um, progress and of anti-racism, maybe even, uh, to say that, that uh, the, the, 
the inherent dignity of these indigenous peoples as being, um, you know, ensconced by this repudiation of the doctrine of discovery. But on the other hand, it, it makes all the room uh, for the United States to say that it has the right to take indigenous land for the same reasons that the doctrine of discovery listed uh, conquistadors to take the land back in the 1500s, mm-hmm. right? So while the United States won't use words like heathen and you know barbarian and savage today, um, all the legal precedent does, from you know the Declaration of Independence to the doctrines of discovery, and I think that this is very important to hold together in these discussions, especially in what is now the United States, because it will get lost in the shuffle, and it will uh, we will forget that uh, if we buy into this idea that the the Catholic Church is selling us that um, we can separate the legal from the political and the religious, uh, then we may fail to find that all three of those things are undergirding you know the United States legal framework as we know it. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks so much for that, um, that perspective. And in the interest of time, though, I'm going to shift over to perhaps a different kind of claim of authority. Uh, so we usually hear about the abortion debates in the United States from a particularly, quote unquote, religious perspective. And that religious perspective is usually one that's rooted in a certain brand of Christianity. Um, but Matt, I know that you had a particular perspective from a very incendiary uh, spokesperson. So I wondered if you could introduce a little bit of this recent controversy um, and some some thoughts on its implications. Yeah, for sure. I got I got thoughts, and I uh, I'm, I'm sure y'all got some thoughts too. Um, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, I, uh, I I jumped in. I'm filling in for someone. Uh, um, you know, as of just last night. And so when I, when, I, when I was asked to do this, I thought to myself, okay, well, what, what can I talk about? And uh, this story popped up in my newsfeed and it ties in in a lot of interesting ways with a course I'm teaching right now at the University of Bonn called Religious Nationalism in North America. So I want to think about it in relation to some of the questions that are coming up in my course in relation to these broader questions. So just to introduce uh, uh, the story itself. So this appeared in Newsweek, and it focused around a tweet from Ann Coulter. For anyone who doesn't know who Ann Coulter is, I will give you a little bit of background in just one second. But the tweet in question was from April 20th, 2023, where Coulter wrote, in all caps, compromise solution on abortion, exclamation mark, ban abortion for registered Republicans only. So as a media personality, a provocateur. Uh, clearly, there is some uh, uh, you know, intentional provocation here. Uh, the article in question uh, talks about how Coulter herself um, was making a very strategic move uh, and trying to be, quote unquote, moderate on this issue, positioning herself against, quote unquote, pro-life zealots who are causing Republicans to lose elections and ultimately get more babies killed, as the article itself lays out. She also took a shot at uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, for recently signing a bill that bans abortions after six weeks. So for Coulter, this provocation um, was seemingly intended to uh, call out Republicans um, for overreaching, um, where the subtext, uh, one can infer, uh, is very much pointing to a certain type of uh, Christian voter or Christian nationalist orientation. Although what interests me, and I'd like to come back to this, is how that 
subtext often remains really implicit, at least in mainstream noon sources. So it's a little bit of background on, on Coulter. Uh, I did a little quick research today. So she's, uh, she's 61. She first started to appear on news sites as a regular guest, Fox News, NBC, other spaces in the mid-1990s. Uh, she's written a syndicated column that appears in various conservative outlets since that time, again, the mid-90s. Uh, she's written a number of books, such as Godless, the Church of Liberalism, that's 2006, and her latest is In Trump We Trust, E Pluribus Awesome, exclamation mark, that's 2016. Uh, back in 2003, she described herself as, quote, a typical, immodest dressing, swarthy, male-loving, friend-to-homosexuals, ultra-conservative. And I plucked out this particular quote because I think it speaks to a certain provocative or in an older generation, you might say shock jock style uh, way of uh, um, presenting ideas of getting attention. And this, of course, is in the pre-social media age. She's also someone who is, I think, unorthodox on a number of fronts. So she's also known for appearing on a lot of celebrity roasts, which often get very, very salacious. And if you watch these roasts, uh, uh, the people are, are often all sort of liberally oriented and pull no punches uh, with her in relation to a lot of her political views. Um, not to dwell too much uh, on Coulter, but I think it'd be worth maybe quoting two other points here that uh, are, are, are interesting for some of the broader themes in relation to this topic. So uh, one quote from her, and this is from her 2002 book called Slander, Liberal Lies About the American Right, reads as follows. Liberals hate America. They hate flag weavers. They hate abortion opponents. They hate all religions except Islam post 9-11. Even Islamic terrorists don't hate Americans like liberals do. They don't have the energy. If they had that much energy, they'd have indoor plumbing by now. So you can see this nativist, nativist sentiment, this racialized language, this anti-immigrant language uh, infused through and through in a lot of what she says. Also in 2015, um, speaking directly to President Trump, she wrote, or then candidate Trump rather, um, she talked about her preference for the, uh, the issue of immigration over abortion. And she stated, I don't care if Trump wants to perform abortions in the White House after this immigration policy paper. And here the broader you know, border wall uh, issue was at stake. And so she has you know, some, some interesting uh, unorthodox and certainly provocative ways of addressing her audience from a very conservative uh, point of view. And the one thing that I wanted to flag in this particular story is this Twitter thread that followed uh, her comments. And what really interested me about it was that the vast majority of people commenting on this thread um, were pro-choice um, and supported going back to Roe versus Wade. Um, many expressed shock that they were agreeing for Coulter for the first time in their lives. So, for example, someone named Duke Skymarker writes, I've never felt dirtier than hitting the like button on one of Ann Coulter's tweets. Um, you know, there's some mention in the comments on uh, these laws uh, controlling women's bodies, uh, other people predicting that it will lead to more Republican losses. Uh, and opposition framing was almost exclusively, quote unquote, political, that is to say, not invoking religious concepts or language, right? So liberals versus conservatives, Democrats versus Republicans, and so forth. And the very few uh, quotes that were referencing uh, something 
Christian, for example, uh, did so very implicitly. So, you know, one short and sweet tweet read, Democrat babies matter too, right? So you can, you know, infer uh, a certain um, a Christian orientation or broader religious orientation, although it's not made uh, explicit. And all this got me thinking of uh, a number of prominent uh, right-wing sites uh, like Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, PragerU, Turning Points USA. Uh, these are all sites in my broader research when I focus on cultural politics that I pay a fair bit of attention to. And, and one thing that really interesting uh, interests me uh, in looking at the comment threads on these sites is that occasionally uh, uh, Ben Shapiro or Dennis Prager will try to infuse a very explicitly theological idea or concept, right? Whether it's in relation to abortion or contraception, women's rights, or the need to teach the Bible in school, or the need to have God in your life to understand truth. Um, and the comment sections are often really, really divided, right? Which I think in some sense speaks to uh, uh, some changing you know, demographics when it comes to uh, atheists and non-religion and their associations with more, more right-leaning uh, sites. Um, but I guess the, you know, the, the one question I'll sort of pose that really struck me as interesting here is that when policies, uh, like the repeal of Roe versus Wade on a federal level, um, go, go public, um, when they're not just simply debated, um, in circles of insiders or behind closed doors, so to speak, um, I'm really interested in what happens to public rhetoric. Uh, because it has struck me that since, um, uh, you know, the the overturning of Roe versus Wade on a federal level, um, that there's a lot less explicitly Christian nationalist or theological rhetoric in public when this gets debated. Um, that's my own sense. And I, I wanted to, yeah, just throw that question out there to both of you to get your thoughts on it. I've thought consistently about, you know, the, the sort of claims over the abortion bait uh, in in the United States as being very much, you know, Christian centric, and that that has really monopolized the debates over this in terms of what's correct um, in Christian practice, what's correct about protecting life, what's ethical about women's you know bodies and sort of health and things like that. And so I'm thinking about you know I'm a scholar of Islam, and you know a lot of what I see is that there's lots of elements of, you know, Muslim ethical thought that run counter to a lot of these discussions. And then, so then if I'm thinking about, you know, someone like Ann Coulter, who also has espoused many Islamophobic ideas in the past, um, as you mentioned, even just a few minutes ago. Um, and then I'm thinking about the ways that a lot of Muslim women and Muslim scholars have supported, um, preserving the life of the woman or the mother, uh, for first and foremost, that there's a longer period of time in which abortion might be possible for Muslim women, things like that. And so it's interesting to think about the ways that in some ways this can overlap in a way um, of agreement of some kind, um, but also this idea of kind of Muslim women being perhaps more open to abortion is something that certainly doesn't get a lot of public information or, you know, and one scholar, uh, Zahra Yubi, who's a bioethicist and an Islamic study scholar, and she's working in all kinds of realms related to, um, to this field. She had an interview where she mentioned, um, you know, 
all the likening of the Taliban is coming for our bodies, you know, and sort of thinking about the, the Islamophobic rhetoric of the abortion debate um, as, you know, the United States is becoming like the Taliban um, really puts under the rug the realities of even Muslim debates over this issue. And I just think that that's something that just hasn't been popularized at all. So, Tyler, I don't know mm-hmm. if you can think of other examples of this in terms of public sphere and um, how this gets discussed and what gets left out of this debate in terms of whose voices are a part of this. Matt, I'm, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but I, the closest rhetoric I heard uh, that, that might be um, construed as um, right to life or, or religious rhetoric around pro-life issues was this um, appeal that she makes around um, winning elections and not killing more babies, right? Like it, it's a very practical argument, it seems, where um, – she's going to sidestep the traditional pro-life rhetoric around, uh, you know, every fetus is a baby. It's a human being that, that has these rights and protections, uh, up until, uh, you know, it's birthed. Um, and the, the scriptural rhetoric that seems to go along with that, that has propelled the pro-life movement for three to four decades, uh, since Roe versus Wade was, um, was passed. Uh, but it seems to be entirely bereft of this art, this religious right argument where it's, it's more, you know, framed as a, uh, you know, like a pragmatic approach, uh, now that the cat is out of the bag. Um, but in that sense, the emphasis seems to be a little bit more on winning the elections, mm-hmm. uh, than it does on protecting babies' lives, so to speak. Um, and that's just a really interesting juxtaposition. I think it, it's the rhetoric certainly has changed now that, that Roe v. Wade has been um, overturned. Right. At the same time, uh, the subtlety there is that um, hard right pro-life uh, partisans will continue to organize. Um, so I, I'm anxious to see what that will look like in a post Roe v. Wade world. I, I, I suspect that um, Coulter has her fingers close to uh, the the pulse of the nation uh, on that side of the aisle in the United States, because I don't think we'll see uh, it stopping anytime soon. I think it's just going to continue to ramp up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, if I could add um, just one more one more thing there, just bouncing off what, what Tyler was saying. Um, you know, some of the rhetoric that I heard in the, the immediate aftermath of the overturning of Roe v. Wade last June um, was, you know, coming from what you might call a, a pro-choice circles um, who said or repeated something to the effect that, well, this is kind of like, you know, when a dog catches the car, right? It, now, it is, you know, it's, it's been chasing the car for so long, uh, and now that it's caught it, it's, it's surprised it doesn't necessarily know, know what to do. Um, you know, there are, of course, a lot of uh, organizations and policies and, and, you know, judges and not just in the Supreme Court on the federal level as well uh, that are in place to uh, obviously wield a certain amount of power uh, uh, behind the scenes. But I, I think that there's something to that. Um, it's that the explicit theological or Christian nationalist language that we see in the public sphere right now in the United States perhaps uh, most notably embodied by figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Borbert, to a lesser extent, maybe uh, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, and a few others, um, is something that 
doesn't tend to fly uh, uh, with a lot of uh, um, with a lot of people, even people who are uh, um, you know identifying with with the Republican Party and certain policies. And so, uh, I think it's important to think about the ways in which that language um, code switches, so to speak. Um, and has that kind of, you know, uh, liberal versus conservative valence around it. It gets stuck to other markers of identity, other policies, whether it's, you know, uh, Trump or DeSantis or other leading figures in the Democratic Party uh, or other sort of cultural codes and buzzwords, right, that you can associate with this particular issue. But it is, it's an interesting one. It's a very sticky one uh, because the underlying justification does seem to be heavily infused with a particularly conservative Christian uh, ideology. Uh, and so the way that that gets translated in public um, goes through all of these interesting rhetorical shifts uh, that I think we're continuing to see play out in, in, in all kinds of interesting ways. Great. So thank you for that. Um, so I think we should wrap up. This has been a great discussion, and we've definitely delved plenty into Supreme Court and how it really does have so much impact on those of us in the United States and beyond um, in terms of thinking through religion in a critical uh, critical perspective. So I really value your input there. Um, so I just wanted to give you maybe one uh, quick time or quick chance to do a little plug if you're working on something. Um, maybe Tyler, as a PhD candidate, you can let us know a little bit about what what your project is um, in a nutshell, and then I'll go to Matt on his uh, current work. In a few months, I'm excited to finally hand in my dissertation project. Uh, I'm making a theoretical intervention in the study of religion to push it beyond uh, the confines of discourse and belief. Uh, I'm taking a critical religionist perspective uh, combining that with affect theory and material religion uh, in an indigenous key. I, I want to show how settler colonialism complicates uh, these liberal narratives of individuated belief and how religion works just beyond um, that framework. Thanks. And Matt, what are you, uh, what's your current book or current project on? Yeah, well, um, among other things, I'm, I'm working on a book right now. Um, it's under contract with Routledge called Islam According to Google News, How Media Shaped the Way We Talk About Religion. Uh, and there, if the title didn't give it away, uh, I'll be looking at a number of narratives and discourses on religion, uh, particularly in a Euro-Western and Anglo-American context, and really explore the ways in which Islam gets talked about and framed by looking at a data set of Google News uh, uh, alerts over a certain period of time. Uh, in order to really sort of dig into some some concrete examples of how uh, um, a non-normative religion in a Euro-Western space uh, gets interpreted in uh, uh, in these sort of uh, public cultural forums, so uh, yeah, that's that's what I'll be working on, and, and hopefully I'll be done by uh, by the summertime. Nice, and I'm still drafting my book, um, The Fatima Paradigm, Materiality and Memory in Iran, which is a material culture study of Fatima al-Zahra in Iran um, in contemporary times, thinking about the ways that she is a lens through which the state negotiates gender and religion um, through this figure. And so I look at visual and devotional artifacts um, from Iran to, to do that. So ongoing work, and I'm still editing and writing. So uh, it's pretty exciting times. So thank you all again. Um, and yeah, thanks everyone for listening. So have a wonderful day. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram and other portals. Thanks for listening. Thank you.